0: Bible prophesied of a unique time on earth. Israel would be returned to her land. The church would turn to false doctrines. Technology would increase and wickedness and immorality would run rampant. The time spoken of so long ago has come. Join Charlie Garrett as he breaks down these events for us as they unfold each week. Sunday, 19 November, time for the prophecy update of the week. A few things to say before we get into the Prophecy Update is this week is Thanksgiving on Thursday. I forgot to announce it, and if it wasn't for Jim and Linda, I would have failed today, too. No Bible class on Thursday night this week, so if you're uh, here, you'll be standing outside the door at a closed church. I will be at home eating smoked turkey with my family. So uh, there you go. And uh, then I have a thanksgiving bandana on somebody sent it just in time for thanksgiving and i don't want to give her name this time because um it's a person that's a dear friend of mine and i know that she can't afford to send this and yet she sent it to me anyway so we'd have a thanksgiving bandana and so uh, without giving your name i thank you very much and it touched my heart that you've done this and so uh, thank you um i have uh, a friend that I mentioned in our Bible class this past week, I'm, I think I mentioned it as well last week um, a person that attended the church online and uh, his name was Don Young and he died last week it's somebody somebody that we've been praying for and I wanted to acknowledge his death to the people on the Prophecy Update and to uh, show a photo of him somebody that was a member of this church from Georgia and I want to send my condolences to his precious bride who lost her husband and Then I also want to, because it's Thanksgiving time, I want to give thanks to the people that have helped this ministry. We have never asked for a thing in this church, ever. We've never said, please help us in this way. The only time we've ever asked for anything is to help other ministries. And uh, yet, somehow, the Lord has worked it out where people have helped out this ministry voluntarily without ever being asked, and we have been able to keep the doors open and the people that have done this will never know what that means to me I've been able to now cut out two of my part-time jobs I still have three but um, I do them six days a week and I, I will probably continue to do them even if we you know, are completely a success and you know whatever because I need to do something with my life and it's the only exercise I get but uh, I want to thank everybody that has helped out this ministry it, it is truly an honor it is truly an honor and I thank you for that And uh, I also want to thank especially the Lord Jesus Christ who established this ministry. It's not mine. It's not ours. It is his. And when he sees fit for it to end, it will. And, uh, you know, somebody emailed me this week, and uh, he said, oh, I see your numbers went in half this past week on the uh, sermons and the updates. And I said, I never look at the numbers. When I cut and paste the URL to post it to somebody, I hold my hand over it. I don't want to know what the numbers are. I don't care. It doesn't make any difference to me. But I do know that doctrine... People do not want to know doctrine. When I say something, I went back and I thought, I wonder what would have precipitated this. It's because I talked about women in the ministry. And half of the people online are women, and so they didn't like that. But I didn't write the word of God. But I will not. I, I said to him, I am the one that has to stand in front of Jesus Christ, and I have to take account for every word that I give. And I'm not going to waffle on doctrine for numbers. That's why I don't look at numbers. I don't care about numbers. If we don't have anybody watching this, we still have a church here, and I have a family. So... Um, doctrine matters and today we are going to have a prophecy update on doctrine holy doctrine we're not doing a regular update i hope that you'll enjoy it you may get bored and fall asleep and fall out of your chair but i would hope that's not the case uh and then one more thing is we have two people visiting here uh randy and vicky chubbuck and they're from georgia and i highlighted their son this past year he was a person that uh uh, watched faithfully and he died this past year and uh, one of the things that she told me is that he loved to see the irony of the week, and he'd laugh at it. And uh, what was the affliction that he had? I don't remember the name of it. Asperger's, Asperger's syndrome. syndrome. Okay. And uh, it, was, it was an honor to highlight him, and it is more of an honor to meet you today and to share in your grief with you and to thank you for coming. They've come all the way from Boynton Beach today, which took them hours to get here, and they've got to get in their car and drive right back. But thank you for making this effort. They're visiting Florida right now from Georgia And uh, thank you for your faithful witness in Jesus Christ. Okay, today we're going to do a a, um, prophecy update solely on the rapture. And the reason why I'm going to do this is because um, uh, I heard from somebody, actually the person that sent me the bandana, she said she was watching a prophecy update by a person named Jacob Prech. I don't watch other updates, so I I am not involved in these things. But uh, Jacob Presch... Um, barbecued J.D. Farrag over being a uh, pre-trib rapture believer. Apparently, he did it very almost violently. She said it was it was an embarrassment, and um, so I thought, well, that's not right. You know, people have a view on something, and uh, there's no point in showing less than a Christian attitude over something like that. But then I uh, was sent a link this past week from a place that's here in Florida, which I've never heard of, but it's called True News. And uh, they said, oh, he's got a big following, and um, they said, uh, listen to this. And I normally won't listen to these things, but I, I did start to listen to it, and they gave me a time to start listening, and so I did. And he said that if you teach a pre-tribulation rapture, you are going to hell. You're going to burn in the flames of hell. And I thought that, that is one, one of the stupidest things I've ever heard in my life, yeah. is that somebody would say, you know what saves a person and keeps them from hell? the shed blood of Jesus Christ and that is it okay you believe in Jesus Christ and you are saved the doctrine of eternal salvation is all over the Bible if you can't get your head around that then you're not reading your Bible you're listening to somebody that taught you something incorrect but the shed blood of Jesus Christ is what saves us 99.999% of all people that have ever existed in Christianity don't even know what a rapture is there weren't Bibles for thousands of years right or for a thousand and a half years And most people don't read their Bibles today. There's a very small portion of people in Christianity that actually talk about the rapture. And because you watch 10,000 prophecy videos a week, you think that's all the people focus on. But that is not all that people focus on. It's something that most people don't know about, and it's not going to keep you from hell. It's not going to condemn you to hell. Okay? There's nothing about that. And then he said that it's a heresy to teach a pre-tribulation rapture. Okay? Uh, that is really bad doctrine. That's exceptionally poor doctrine because there are certain things that are heresies. We talk about on Thursday at the Bible class. A heresy is something that will keep somebody from being saved. It's not something like bad doctrine, which if I teach it, well, I'm going to lose rewards. The heresy is something that will actually keep another person from being saved. And you can be a heretic, actually, and teach uh, heresy and still be a saved person. Watch the uh, Thursday night Bible studies and you'll understand that. But doctrine actually matters, Okay. And uh, he said, he, he kept focusing on this word heresy, and he says from Galatians chapter 6, which let, let me pull that up for you, so what he's saying, he's saying that people that do this and that and one thing and another, I, including heresies, uh, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, and so let me see if I can find this really quickly. Maybe it's chapter 5 or, oh, here it is, chapter five, twenty-one. envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like of which I tell you before. Oh, and the previous verse says um, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies. It's one of the things. Okay, and he says that'll keep a person from the kingdom of God. Well, he's talking about people that are not saved in the first place. If you're saved, you are saved. To say that you can lose your salvation is very small theology. Watch the Thursday Bible studies and you'll understand that. But um, anyway, the word heresy, which he probably doesn't know because he doesn't do word studies, I'm sure, in uh, Acts 24, I think it's the 14th verse, Paul, Paul actually says that I am of this heresy which you call the way. Okay, in other words, a heresy means a sect or a, a subgrouping of something. It has come to mean something different in the sense of um, being heretical. Okay, but at the time of Paul, it meant something different. So this guy doesn't know what he's talking about in the first place, and um, you're not going to lose your salvation if you believe in a pre-tribulation rapture or a post-tribulation rapture or a mid-tribulation rapture or if you don't believe in a rapture at all because, you know, the people of uh, the Reformed churches don't believe in a rapture at all, and they're saved believers. Okay, so I've got that out of the way. I'm going to break down rapture verses for you. I'm not going into the Old Testament. There are some that people can construe as rapture verses, such as Isaiah 26, which could be construed as that. But I'm going to stick with the New Testament, and there's a reason why and I'll mention that at the very end of this. But um, 1 Corinthians 15 speaks of the resurrection, and it details the rapture. This is 1 Corinthians 15. You can make notes on this. You can go home and actually read your Bible and it'll help you out there, explaining what will happen to the body and what we have and what will come next and why. So it's talking about the body, about the rapture, etc. Verses 20 through 23 speak of the resurrection. Okay? That's 1 Corinthians 15. Verses 35 through 49. Tell the type of body that we will have. It says it will be a spiritual body. It's not a spirit body. We're not going to be floating around on clouds. We will have a physical body which will be spiritual in nature. Our spiritual reconnection with God is established when we call on Jesus Christ as Lord. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit, and the connection is remade. Okay, I'll give you a little bit of logic, because I've talked about once saved, always saved, or eternal salvation, is that if you call on Jesus Christ, Paul says that if you believe in him, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit, okay? It's done. And then he goes on to say that it is a deposit, a guarantee of our future redemption. Three things about that. First, if God sealed us and it, he changes his mind and takes it away, it's not the God of the Bible because God does not change his mind. He has sealed you. Secondly, if you do, it is a mistake and God does not make a mistake, Okay, and thirdly, it's called a guarantee, and if he takes it away, it was a really crummy guarantee, and it's not the God of the Bible once again. He is ever faithful, even though we are faithless, okay? So that's doctrine for you. We can go to a 100 verses which support eternal salvation. There's about five that people use that support loss of salvation, and they are taken Out of context. So, there you go. I've got a commentary on all of them. If you want them, email me and I can send you whatever you want. Okay, but I've done a commentary on the, uh, pretty much the entire New Testament verse by verse. And I'm going to give you a portion of those comments from 2 Thessalonians 2 today. Okay, but we're going to go on before we get to 2 Thessalonians 2. I said that 1 Corinthians 15, 35 through 49, the type of body we will have. And then 50 through 53, how the event will occur. Now, I'm not going to read a lot of this because there's not going to be time. I have no idea how long this is going to take to get through, and we have a service to go through as well. But I will read you those verses right there. 1 Corinthians 15. Um, I don't want to leave you hanging too much in 1 Corinthians. So 15, 50 through 53. He says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. We're in corrupt bodies. Cut off your arm and watch it. Rot. Okay, this is corruption. Okay, behold, I tell you a mystery. That's going to reveal something that I said I would tell you about at the end of this talk. That word right there, behold, I tell you a mystery, is why I am doing this and why that guy in True News and Jacob Presh are incorrect in uh, their analysis of somebody being a heretic if you believe in one rapture or another. But I'll get to that later. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye. I can blink my eyes. Five times in one second. The twinkling of an eye is less than what? That's two hundredth of a second. Okay? We're not going to see it happen. It's going to be there and it's going to be gone. We're going to be out of here. Okay? So, uh, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So that's the rapture verse specifically from 1 Corinthians 15. And uh, then we're going to go on now to 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 17, okay? This is the order of the actual rapture events. The Lord will descend, the trumpet will blow, the dead in Christ will rise first, all of that. Most people know those verses. If they don't know anything else about the rapture, they know those verses. I'm not going to read them, but you can go there. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 17, Then it goes into chapter 5 in verses 1 through 3, and Paul says something that I do want to read you from the Bible. Um, This is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. He says, but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write you. He is repeating the words of Jesus Christ just before he ascended in Acts chapter 1. He's using the exact same words so that we don't make the mistake that we have seen countless times in the past. Okay, and I'm going to read you what Jesus said. The very last question that the disciples said in Acts chapter 1 was, Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? These are Jews coming out of the law. This is a new thing that's going on, a new covenant, which he said that he he established in his shed blood, and they are thinking what? Kingdom. He is going to establish kingdom. They are not thinking about a Gentile-led church age at all. They are thinking kingdom, and I'm going to make a point about that at the end as well as far as using Matthew and Mark and Luke for your doctrine of the rapture. Bad news, and I'll explain that. They are thinking kingdom. Christ is going to establish his kingdom, and he said there, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Then he said, it is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. Paul repeats that. People say 1 Thessalonians 5, one means that we can predict the rapture, and we're going to know that. It is exactly the opposite, okay? If you want to know what is being said there, go read my commentary. I'm not going to read you that part of my commentary. I've got verse by verse, and I explain it in detail. You will never know when the rapture is. Nobody will ever know when the rapture is, and anybody says that should be ignored. But instead, they give them 8 million views. They send them their money, They and that's another thing I'll explain at the end of our commentary as well, is what you should do with people like that, but... You will not know that. And that is what Jesus is telling us there specifically in Acts. And then Paul repeats exactly the same words. So we don't make this fundamental error of theology. Doctrine actually matters. Okay. We go on from there in the same passage. One Thessalonians chapter five. I close my book too quickly. He says, um, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, so comes as a thief in the night. What is the day of the Lord? It begins with T and ends with tribulation. Anybody? Okay. It's the tribulation period. It is the seven years of tribulation that is coming on the earth. The day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. And he says in verse 3, for when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction, the tribulation period comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. Verse 4, here's what it says. But you, brethren, are not in darkness so that this day, what day? Tribulation period, this day should overtake you as a thief. He has just told you that it is a pre-tribulation rapture. If the day of the Lord, the seven years of tribulation is darkness and you are sons of light and not of the night, pre-tribulation rapture. But we're going to go on. We're going to defend that view because it is the only view that is correct. But I don't care if people teach wrong views. It doesn't matter to me. What I care about is that you hear what is correct. And then you say, I'm not going to listen to these people that have the wrong view anymore. He's just told us that it's pre-tribulation rapture. He will substantiate that in his second epistle to the Thessalonians. And the reason why is because they didn't listen the first time. Okay? Uh, In verses 4 and 5, as I just said, Not in darkness, sons of the light, it is a pre-tribulation inference, okay? If the day of the Lord, the tribulation period is darkness, we are sons of the light, then we are not to be found in the tribulation period, the darkness. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 10 gives tribulation or refers to the tribulation that is coming upon the world. He explains what it's going to be like, okay? So if you want to read those verses, go ahead. After that, 2 Thessalonians 2, which is going to comprise the next I don't know how long, okay, gives the timeline for what what will occur next. Verse 2-1. Now, brethren, and I've taken my commentaries and I've shortened them because I'm long-winded. Jim and Linda read them every day. A couple other people in here read them, and they know that I, I get very wordy, and I like it. You know, if one adjective will suffice, then add two, okay? That's my attitude, all right? But... I've compiled these or uh, made them a little bit shorter for you, and I'm going to read you my commentaries on 2 Thessalonians 2. Verse 1. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering to him, this is the rapture, concerning that issue, we ask you, okay, this is an issue which he has already addressed in his first letter. I just went through that with you, especially in chapter 4 of it. Therefore, his words are to be taken along with what is said there. Go read those verses. Without getting too far ahead, it is evident from his coming words that people were making false claims. Oh, no, false claims about the rapture, about the events of 1 Thessalonians 4. And these statements were troubling the fellowship, as we've seen time and time again, 88 reasons why the rapture will happen in 1988, and it didn't happen. And ever since then, we've had people doing these stupid things, okay? Right? Paul wants them, and thus... Us, that's right, because he's writing an epistle, which is now in the Bible. He wants us to know the proper sequence of events, which will occur and in and around the Lord's coming and our gathering to him, as he says. The word Paul uses there, translated as gathering, is only found here and in Hebrews 10, verse 35, in regards to Christians assembling together for worship and instruction. In this case, it must be referring to all who are in Christ, both the dead and the living. The words of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 are being further explained. The dead in Christ will rise first and we will uh, be gathered up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. It's all believers in Christ. Therefore, it is certainly referring here to the timing of the rapture at the Lord's coming for the church. Verse 2-2. Not to soon be shaken. This is continuing on with the same thought. Not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. First, he says that those in Thessalonica are not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled. This is based on what he said in verse 1 about the rapture. He is asking them to be sound in their doctrine. And thus they will not be led astray in their minds. Their hope will remain steadfast and their faith will not be weakened. How many people have had their faith weakened because of these dolts predicting the rapture? It is insane. People's faith is harmed. People that might come to Christ will never come to Christ. Jews that hear this laugh at Christians and they will never come to be Christians because of it. It is insane. And people continue to watch these videos. Insane. Insane. Okay, he then says that this should be the case if presented with a false claim, either by spirit or by word or by letter. The reason why it is false lies yet ahead in Paul's words, but if a claim is made which contradicts the word of the Lord, then it's a false claim. Such a claim could be, as he says, by spirit. This would be a supposed prophetic utterance by someone in a Christian setting. It would be a claim to divine revelation. Today we have what? We have the Bible, okay? We have the Bible. It is written, okay? We do not need, nor will we receive, a word of prophetic utterance concerning the rapture. It is not going to happen. Any claim of such a prophecy is to be rejected. It is false. And the supposed recipient is to be disregarded as a lunatic. Next, Paul says, by word or by letter. I can see the subs going down and down on my site, and I don't care. I am not here to teach people what they want to hear. If I wanted to have 100,000 views a week, all I do is make stuff up like these other people and tickle their ears. I'm not going to do that. Paul says, by word or letter. If a supposed letter or writing is received which contradicts what Paul will say, it should be tossed into the garbage can, soaked with gas, and lit on fire. Be careful not to burn down your house in the process. Gas is combustible. With this thought of the importance of what he will now say out of the way, he finishes the verse with, as Though the day of Christ had come. You have to understand the importance of those words. The focus here is on the day of Christ. That is what he is writing about. Everything is in relation to that. This is the main thought of Paul's words of the section. The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering to him is being set in relation to the day of Christ. Not the other way around. If one doesn't properly follow this thought, then there will be confusion in their end times theology. When is the rapture? When is the Antichrist revealed? These things have to be taken in connection with what is now said by Paul. Otherwise, an incorrect analysis of the timing of these events is inevitable. This is why Paul specifically started with the rapture and then said it in relation to the day of Christ. Question, what is the day of Christ then? It needs to be understood that various manuscripts say day of the Lord or day of Christ. They both have the same meaning. Christ is the Lord. I hope people understand that. This is speaking of the seven years of tribulation which are coming upon the world. It is not merely the last three and a half years of this period. That is not what he's speaking about. Because he referred to it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, And they didn't listen, 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, and they did not listen. So he's speaking about the same time period, not the last three and a half years. He is speaking of the time of darkness, the seven years of tribulation, okay? These seven years are what is spoken of and referred to in Daniel 9, verses 24 through 27. It's a very long study. It would take us hours to get through. Trust me on this. It is speaking of seven years given to Israel in the end times after the end of the Gentile-led church age. The details of these seven years are given in numerous places in the Old Testament, and they are described in great detail in Revelation 4, verse 2, until Revelation 19, verse 10. This is what Paul is referring to here. Verse 2, 3, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come, unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. The opening clause of this verse, let no one deceive you by any means, is based on what was said in the previous verse. Okay? They were not to soon be shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us. At that early day, that early day in church history, there were deceivers who were making up crazy stuff out of their own heads and passing it off as prophecies from the Lord. Paul is showing those at Thessalonica and thus... Us that only the instructions of the true apostles were to be regarded as authoritative. The apostles, direct doctrine. Okay, Jesus is the head of the church. He has given his authority to the prophets and apostles. That's the foundation, the Bible says. A foundation is laid, how many times? Once. That's How did you know that? You must have seen the number somewhere. That's right. It, one time. Okay, so, the only instructions of the true apostles were to be regarded as as authoritative now that the apostolic age is over our only only source for divine revelation is the word of god any supposed word from the lord or any supposed divine instruction apart from the bible is to be wholly rejected paul's next words have a thought inserted in them by the translators for that day will not come that's inserted by the translators unless the falling away comes first The Greek simply reads, because if not shall have come the apostasy. However, the words which were inserted by the translators are rightly supplied. It is speaking not of the rapture of verse 1, but of the day of Christ. The rapture was set in relation to the day of Christ or the day of the Lord of verse 2. Not the other way around. The day of Christ, meaning the tribulation period, will not come unless the falling away comes first. It has become common to teach that this word, apostasia, in the Greek, or falling away, is actually speaking about the rapture, because the word signifies to leave or depart. However, this is an unnecessary stretch of the intent of the words. The word is only used elsewhere in Acts 21, verse 21, when speaking of forsaking Moses, departing from Moses, meaning the law of Moses. The departure is one of purposeful turning away from set doctrine. There will be a falling away from the true faith of Christ before the day of Christ comes upon the world. What is implied here is that the true church will be gone by then, but that will be explained in verse 7. It is not explained by the word apostasia in this verse, okay? Along with this thought, Paul finishes the verse with, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Here he speaks of the man of sin. The term is unique in the New Testament. It is applied to a specific person who will be a man of lawlessness, as the word anomia implies. The word signifies the utter disregard for God's law, his written and living word. Paul further describes him as the son of perdition. This term is used only one other time in the entire Bible. Speaking of anybody, Judas. John 17, 12, when speaking of Judas, who betrayed Jesus. Judas, in essence, fell away from the truth of the apostolic office, which otherwise could have been his. He chose the evil path, and he was essentially born to be destroyed. Like Judas, this person will be set on a course which can only lead to ruin. The word Paul uses, which is translated as revealed, is apocalypto. You've heard that before, haven't you? It will be as if a covering is pulled away, and this person bent on disregarding God's law will be unveiled. He then is a counterfeit to Christ, and thus he is known to us as the Antichrist. What we have so far is the understanding that the day of Christ, meaning the day of the Lord, will not actually commence until the Antichrist is revealed. However, he will not be revealed until after the rapture, as is implied in this verse, but which will be made explicit in verse 7. And so, thus far, we see the sequence of events. One, rapture of the church. Two, the falling away and the revealing of Antichrist. Three, the day of Christ, meaning the day of the Lord. Verse 2-4, who opposes himself and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. The words which begin this verse are actually in the present tense. Rightly translated, it says, the one opposing and exalting himself. If taken substantially, it would read the opposer and exalter of himself. It clearly is a reference to the Antichrist. The words are reflective of Satan himself, but are being applied to a man, and so it is one who is wholly in league with the goals and intents of Satan. It is this man of lawlessness who places himself above all that is called God Or is worshiped. In this phrase, it is understood that the Antichrist will place himself above the true God as well as above all false gods. Total allegiance to him will be required. In essence, he will be believed to be the fulfillment of whatever hope is laid out in any religion, any at all. For those who say they are Christians, he will appear as their Christ. For the Jews, he will be their Messiah. For Muslims, he will be their Mahdi, etc. But he will exalt himself above the God or gods that he claims that he is from, demanding worship of himself only. There are things that are not gods, which receive worship and adoration, but he will exalt himself above any such thing. This self-exaltation will be seen in a demand for total allegiance above power, money, or even life itself. This will be fully seen and realized on the day that he sits as God in the temple of God, according to Paul. These words, for countless years of the church, have been taken to mean something other than a Jewish temple. That temple was destroyed, and there seemed no chance of one ever being rebuilt. Some have taken this to mean the Vatican, where the Pope sits. Others argue it's referring to the Christian church in general. Charles Ellicott, who I respect highly, but he was many years ago before things were turned back into the Jews' favor and they're back in the land. Charles Ellicott took it to mean, here's what he thinks that means, a poetical or prophetical description of usurping divine prerogatives generally. These and other analyses were based on a misunderstanding that the church had somehow replaced Israel or that there would never again be a temple of God in Jerusalem. However, it is understood from the dispensational model, which is the correct one, by the way, that Jews do have another temple coming. Daniel 9, 24 through 27. It is written to Jerusalem and to your people. Daniel was a Jew. His city was Jerusalem. Okay, your city and your people, Jerusalem. And that is now possible with Israel back in the land. The temple implements are ready. I have seen them. I've been there and I've seen them. And since I was there, they made more, which I've seen online. Okay, they are built. They're ready. And this is actually in accord with Revelation 11, verse 1, where John was told to measure the temple of God. One does not measure a universal church or a poetical, prophetical description. And the Vatican doesn't sit in Jerusalem. Paul's words, combined with those of Daniel and John, clearly indicate a rebuilt Jewish temple in Jerusalem, coming soon to a temple near you, okay? Okay. It is in this temple that the Antichrist will sit as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God, according to Paul. To sit in the temple where only God is allowed to reside is to claim the authority and personage of God. No priest is said to sit in the temple ever in the Old Testament. There are duties to be conducted and then they are to depart. No such furniture exists for the priests to sit down. Only in the Holy of Holies of the temple was there a place of rest. This is where God dwelled above the cherubim, on the mercy seat above the ark. The high priest would enter behind that veil once a year. We just went through the day of atonement sermon. Okay, once a year to make atonement for the sins of the people. But other than that, there was no sitting of any kind involved in temple duties. Good news. Hebrews 10 verse 12 and Hebrews 12 verse 2 say that Jesus performed his work and then he did what? He sat down. Jesus is the Lord God. Antichrist sitting in the temple will be his claim that he is entitled to sit there because he is the one who is God, or at least he thinks he is. As it is known that Jesus is God incarnate and the Christ, this then is the Antichrist. He will make a false claim against the true God who has revealed himself in the person of Jesus. Verse 2-5, do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? Here, Paul takes time to upbraid the church at Thessalonica, and he does it in the form of a question. Further, in a change unique to this verse alone, he switches from the third person to the first person. Whereas he has been saying we to include those with him who are Silvanus and Timothy, he now departs from that in his zeal to correct his audience, and he says, I am. He begins with, do you not remember? It's a way of saying, you obviously did not pay attention. At the end of sermons, I'll often stop and I'll ask a question from the sermon and everybody here has deer in the headlights, except one person who stands up and says, I know, and that person gets my bonus of the week. They get an extra cookie because that's, and that's what he's doing right here. He's putting them on the spot. He begins with, do you not remember? Jesus uses the same type of questioning in order to rebuke his disciples. He'd ask them a question as a way of saying, you didn't pay attention. Paul's done it elsewhere as well, such as in his letters to the Romans and those at Corinth. Now, having chided them for not having remembered and for instead having become shaken by someone's introduction of false doctrine back in verse 2, he goes on to say that when I was still with you, he was there telling him these things. As noted, he speaks here in the first person. I personally was there and I personally instructed you on this matter. Paul's frustration is obvious. He wanted soundness of mind for his beloved brethren, but they had instead been disturbed in their thinking because of the introduction of incorrect doctrine. To finish the verse, he says, I told you these things. I'm going to stop right there. I'm going to say I teach things on Thursday night, and by Friday, or I'm sorry, by uh, the next Wednesday night, I've gotten 30 emails of people asking the same thing that I said there. Or they went to another site, and they listened to this, and then I have to re-correct them on what is proper doctrine. If you listen and you pay attention you don't understand, send me an email and I will explain it, okay? Or watch the thing again. Um, I, th- this past week, I said something that I've gotten countless emails on. I uh, said that we will not see God the Father, ever, ever. Right. And I got a lot of emails, people saying, well, what do you mean you're not going to see God the Father? God the Father is what? It's really big. He's infinite, okay? Infinite. Right. We cannot see an infinite or we would be God. We would be infinite, okay? I'll give you an example. When we're looking at the universe and I see Pluto, forget Pluto, that's not a planet anymore. We'll look at uh, (laughs) Neptune, okay? I'm looking at Neptune. Am I seeing the whole universe? I'm seeing a part of the universe that is being revealed to me, okay? And I'm not seeing the back of Neptune, I'm not seeing the middle of Neptune. All I'm seeing is just a picture of Neptune. We will never see God the Father. We will only see God the Son revealing God the Father to us infinitely, ceaselessly, Endlessly revealing God the Father to us. He is the lamp. He is the light of God that shines forth. He is the incarnate Word of God. He is our mediator. He is everything that allows us to understand God the Father. If you have seen me, he says, you have seen the Father. He is telling them that God the Father is, as the Bible described, not able to be seen he will always reveal God the Father to us okay we're not going to see God in that sense we will see like Pluto or forget Pluto uh, Neptune we're going to see a portion of what God is revealing in the person of Jesus and it will go on for eternity no matter how long we search out the secrets and mysteries of God he will infinitely be above us infinitely we will never attain the infinite it will go on forever and forever and forever back to doctrine here Okay, he speaks in the first person. He says, I told you these things. The word translated as told in the Greek is in the imperfect tense. In other words, I repeatedly told you these things. Thursday, Bible study, right? I say things again and again. The use of the imperfect when read by the church would be an embarrassing moment for them. I told you, I told you, and I told you, and they still don't remember. Paul had spoken of the end times as a core part of his doctrine. And one of the things that he told them was that it would probably be a long time before the Lord returned. Further, before the day of Christ, meaning the day of the Lord came, certain things would precede it. I've already told you this. If they had paid attention, they would now not be unsettled. The same imperfect tense is used in 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 4, when reminding them that they would face tribulation. Not the tribulation period, but tribulation in their lives. Paul and those with him didn't just tell them this. They told it to them often. And how many times do we see people go to churches where you get good news all the time? God wants to bless you and he wants you to, if he's an ATM, put in $50 into this ministry and you'll get back 500 No, they're getting 50 and you're getting nothing. Okay, that's what's happening. God is not a cosmic ATM. We are going to face tribulations in this world, trials and difficulties. If you don't believe it, talk to the people that are sitting in this church right now that lost their son this year. Okay? We all will face this. That's what he's saying. He said it to them there and he's saying, I said the same thing about the core doctrine of the rapture. Okay? It's going to be a long time. It's going to be a a time of tribulation during our lives but not tribulation of the world. Paul and those with him didn't just tell them this. They repeatedly told him that. And the same is true with his words of end time events. The entire thought of this verse is reminiscent of that of Hebrews 5 verse 12, which says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. You have come to need milk and not solid food. There are things which people hear and of which they should pay close attention to, But they instead take brain naps while the instructor is imparting his wisdom to them. In this, they are only harming themselves. Hey, you, wake up. He's still not waking up. I'm talking to you, Dr. Bridges. He's he's taking notes. I'm just picking on him. Verse 2, 6. And now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. Paul continues with his thoughts on the revealing of the Antichrist. He said that the Antichrist would not be revealed until after the rapture of the church. This is implied in the previous verses, and it will be implied again in the coming verses. Only then will Antichrist be revealed, and the world will enter the day of Christ, meaning the day of the Lord. But something is restraining that from occurring, something they have already been told about. This is reminded to them with the words, and you know now what is restraining. They already know. The words and now are not speaking of anything he has said in this letter. Okay? He's obviously referring to what he's told him in the past. Instead being in a temporal sense, the word now is being used in an introductory sense. They are being asked to call to memory what had already been told them. The reason for explaining it this way is because the church had been fooled. They had been misdirected. They had been duped by false information concerning and claiming that the day of Christ had come. The reminder now is that revealing of the Antichrist is actually purposefully hindered, and it would continue to be so until the right time had arrived. The words, what is restraining, are insufficient here. That's the translation of the New King James Version. There is a definite article in front of restraining in the Greek. This is not a mere doctrine that they were aware of, but rather a specific and familiar object. It should say that which is restraining. A known entity is restraining the coming of Antichrist and the time for that entity to cease restraining will come as planned by God. And so there was absolutely no reason, get this straight, there was absolutely no reason for those in Thessalonica and thus us us to speculate about having already entered the tribulation period. The truth holds for us even until this day. And yet, how many times have people claimed that the day of Christ, meaning the day of the Lord, has arrived? How many speculations about the tribulation period have been laid out in chart upon chart upon chart? But there is one restraining, and that will continue to be the case so that he, as Paul says, may be revealed in his own time. The he there is speaking of Antichrist. What is restraining? The revealing of the Antichrist is not specifically mentioned. But it can be readily inferred based on several things in the verses to come. But suffice it to say that one, the Antichrist is one who stands in opposition to Jesus. If this must be restrained for even 2,000 years now, it shows that even though Antichrist is a person, there is more involved. He is a person who will be specifically filled with Satan. And two, if this could be given at any time, then there is a set time known even 2,000 years ago when this would come about. What could restrain Satan from so filling whatever person he chose for that long? Stay tuned. The words that he might be revealed in his own time from Paul's hand have the meaning of with a view to. What this means is that God's purposes will come about because the power of Antichrist will stop being restrained when he sees fit. God sees fit. That's when it's going to happen. Just as God ordained Israel to be exiled to Babylon 70 years, and he said it in advance, right? And then they were, and then exiled, and that exile ended as prophesied. Remember, Daniel picked up the book of Jeremiah, and he read it, and it said 70 years, you're going to be exiled, and then it'll end. And he said, Lord, it's been 70 years. time to send us home. Same thing here. Just as the same is true at the ending of the second exile, at a pre-prophesied moment to effect his purposes, the ending of the restraint of the power which will be given to the Antichrist is intended to meet God's purposes for judgment on the unrepentant world. It is not for judgment on the church. The church is the bride of Christ. We are prepared as a virgin betrothed to one husband. A husband does not beat up his husband, his wife, LGBT, forget that. A husband does not beat up his wife unless he's a really bad husband. And we have the best husband of all. Okay? The word translated as time indicates a set and purposeful time. It is a particular season. Just as Christ Jesus was said to have come in the fullness of times set by God, so Antichrist will come at a particular season to fulfill God's purposes. And what did he say at the beginning of chapter 5 of uh, 1 Thessalonians, repeating what Jesus said in Acts chapter 1? It is not for you to know the times or the seasons. We can know the general sense of what's going on in the world, and we can say Christ is coming soon. But we are not going to know the times and seasons which the Father has placed under his own authority, repeated by Paul, so that we wouldn't make the huge mistake theologically that we make in churches all the time. It's a shame. It's terrible to see people throw away hour after hour after hour in front of YouTube watching videos about the day of the rapture coming when it ain't going to be the day that they predicted. They're false teachers, and they need to not be watched. Okay? first 2-7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. The word for here is based on the words of the previous verse. Paul said something was restraining the Antichrist. This was, as Paul says, that he may be revealed in his own time. From this, Paul continues with, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. A mystery is something that is not yet revealed you see the word mystery from Paul's hand that is what it is it's something that is not yet revealed and he says the mystery of lawlessness is already at work he hasn't revealed it okay there is a lawlessness which is working and it has been working for 2,000 years or more now which is not yet fully revealed it's a mystery and until it happens it is not revealed okay that has been slowly working out a plan This has been going on. In the Greek, there is an article in front of both the word mystery and the word lawlessness. It reads for the mystery of the lawlessness. The state of lawlessness, which is still not fully revealed, is already at work, according to Paul's hand. The idea of the work is that of an inward action. It is as if yeast is causing bread to swell It is an infection. It is not a personal thing. It is a state of lawlessness which is working and which will eventually be revealed. This mystery is then sharply contrasted to the word revealed, which is found in verses 6 and 8. There is a time when the lawlessness will come forth to effect its purposes on earth. It will be when the Antichrist is revealed because he will then embody this lawlessness, which has been building as a yeast all of this time. The working of lawlessness, however, is kept in check until the appropriate time. That is what we're being told here. At some point, the restraining force of verse 6 will no longer restrain. It's a season that we are not to know. It is a mystery that Paul did not reveal to us. As it says, only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Here the words, will do so, are supplied by the translators for clarity. The use of the masculine word, he, is based upon the masculine singular article in the Greek. In verse 6, the restraining force was described with a neuter article, that which restrains. This is now converted to a masculine noun. The question is, who is he? The New King James Version capitalizes the word. This is a presupposition that it is speaking of the Holy Spirit. Others continue to translate it as the one. He, not capitalized, that which, the person, and so on. Each translation is based on a best guess of the nature of this restrainer. But Paul uses the masculine here for a reason, and so it is not appropriate to continue to translate it in the neuter. Further, this cannot be a person in the regular sense. The restraining has gone on for millennia, too, in fact, It is also not something belonging to the lawlessness. To be restrained is an external force, not an internal one. Therefore, the New King James Version is correct. God is restraining. However, and more specifically, it is the restraining power of the third member of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. One analysis is that the restrainer is the church itself. But as the word is masculine, it is more appropriately the one who is intimately identified with the true church. You believe in Jesus Christ, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit as a guarantee. Remember that. I said that earlier about salvation. It pertains to the rapture as well. Okay, that's Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. Go memorize those verses. You cannot lose your salvation. You will not be left behind at the rapture if you don't believe in a rapture. 2,000 years of people never heard of a rapture, and they are the dead in Christ, and they will be going to meet Christ. And all of the people that don't believe in the rapture, well, they're going to be a little bit surprised, but they're going to meet him too, okay? (laughs) The church is involved in the restraining process, but it is the Holy Spirit who is the one who is actively restraining the lawlessness. And he will do so until, as Paul says, he is taken out of the way. What this means is that there is a time when the Holy Spirit's restraining influence will no longer be effected. A releasing of the restraint will come about and then only will the lawless one be revealed. What is certain then is that if the Holy Spirit is taken out of the way, the church must too be taken out of the way. If the effect of the Holy Spirit is to end, and the church were to remain, then the guarantee of the sealing of the Spirit, which I just cited in Ephesians 1.14, would be a pretty crummy guarantee, right? We would be left abandoned. This is completely contrary to the nature of God and to his word. Thus, this taking out of the way of the Holy Spirit is simultaneous with the taking away of the church at the rapture. Both occur, and only then will the mystery of lawlessness, and thus the Antichrist, be revealed. This is explicitly stated next, verse 2-8. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. And then. In Greek, it is kei tote. It is correctly translated, and then. Sometimes translators incorrectly translate something. Ketote tote means and then. So here we have a clear sequence of events, the restrainer, meaning the Holy Spirit and thus the body of believers whom the Holy Spirit is sealed will be taken out of the way Two, and then the lawless one will be revealed, which will be in conjunction with three, the tribulation period, which is the day of Christ, the day of the Lord. The timeline is set. People didn't listen the first time. Paul re-explained it in the second letter and people are still not listening today. One thing about this church is that since the advent of the internet, everybody is a specialist in theology. Nobody knows the Bible. They've probably never read it through once, but they know a few verses and they're specialists in theology. It is heartbreaking to see how much This has gone on in the church lately. People are unwilling to get properly trained. They go off on these tangents and they mandate that everybody listen to them or they're going to burn in the flames of hell like True News says. What a form of bondage. What a way to convince people that you need to donate to him and nobody else. That is absolutely insane. All right. Here we go. The timeline is set. There is no reason at all to debate who the Antichrist is. And there is no need to wonder if Christians will have to endure some mid-trib or all post-trib of the tribulation period. Paul is the one who defines these things. Going to the words of Jesus in the synoptic gospels, I said I was going to get to this, to determine the timing of these events is inappropriate. If you don't know what synoptic means, it means Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They match each other. John is completely different. It's written for a different purpose and, believe it or not, to a different group of people. The three synoptic gospels are written about Jesus fulfilling the law to the nation of Israel. The church is never, never mentioned in Matthew, Mark, or Luke until after the resurrection. And even then, (laughs) Acts 1 shows us that the disciples didn't get it. And until you get to Acts chapter 10, they still didn't get it. In Acts chapter 11, they had to have it re-explained to them. And then we come to Acts chapter 13, Paul takes over, and the church age begins in its fullest sense. He is the apostle to the Gentiles. The Jews are a minority. They're a remnant of believers. They are out. They were destroyed in exile, and here comes the Gentile-led church age. This is what's going on here. Okay? So... Uh, We don't go to the synoptic Gospels. It is not appropriate because Jesus is not speaking to the church about these things. He is speaking to Israel about things which will affect them, including the tribulation period. Matthew 24, I know, I've got other people that argue with me about this, and I'm going to dispel that at the end of this. Matthew 24, no man knows the day and the hour, has zip to do with the rapture. Zip. It has nothing, and I'll prove that at the end of this, okay? In using the words of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, to form a prophetic timeline for the church, one mixes dispensations. In doing so, a convoluted theology will always result. We are to stick to the epistles of Paul for proper Gentile-led church age doctrine. It is only after the removal of the restrainer that the lawless one will be revealed. It is this Satan-filled person whom the Lord, as Paul says, will consume with the breath of his mouth. This is alluded to by John in the book of Revelation. It says in Revelation 19, 15, now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations, okay? Isaiah 11, verse 4, which Paul is actually loosely citing as another reference to this. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked, The symbolism of the sword and the rod reveals a destroying weapon which will come against the forces of Antichrist and destroy them all. They will be destroyed so easily that it will be as if he simply breathes out and they are vanquished. The details are explained in Revelation 19 verse 19 and Revelation 19 verse 21. It is also further defined by Paul with the words and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The supposed power and majesty of the Antichrist will pale in comparison to the glory of Christ Jesus. After defeating the armies gathered together to make war against him, it then says in Revelation 19 verse 20, then the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and with those who worshipped his image, these two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone bad times lay ahead for this sick dude. Instead of ruling the world, he should have been reading his Bible. Jesus said as much to us in Matthew 16, verse 26. There he asked an obvious question. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? The answer is none. Zippo. This vile person will have gained the whole world and yet his soul will be eternally condemned. Not a very bright choice in the end. Okay, then we go on to verses, we're in 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 12. He's going to give details about the time after the rapture and what it will be like for those who are left behind. In verse 3, 6 through 12, it sums up Paul's thoughts concerning the rapture date setters who spend their time in that insanity instead of remaining productive people of God. Verse 10 is how they should be treated. It says in verse 10 of two Thessalonians chapter three, for when we were with you, we commanded you this, if anyone will not work, he shall not eat. The context of what he is writing about is not about people sitting on the stoop out in the projects and not doing any work, although it does apply as well. The context is speaking of people that are rapture date setters. People that are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. People that watch video after video after video about the rapture instead of getting to work and earning their pay. That's what he's talking about there. If you don't work, you don't eat. Don't send those people your money. Don't do it because they're out there making predictions that are false in the first place. You're going to go to hell if you believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. He's condemning people to hell for no reason at all. Don't listen to people like that. All right? Revelation 1, verse 3. This is more rapture stuff I want to give you, and we'll be done in two more minutes. Revelation 1, verse 3 are addressed to the church. The entire thing is church. To the church at Laodicea, to the church at Sardis, to the church in Philadelphia. He's writing to the church. Everybody got that? Revelation 4, verse 1 is the rapture. We'll read that real quickly. Revelation 4, verse 1. All right? He's spoken to the church for three chapters. And then he says in verse 4:1, After these things I looked and behold a door. Who is the door in the Bible? Jesus. Jesus. A door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard like a trumpet speaking with me saying, Come up here. The voice of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the trumpet sound, is Christ saying, Come up here. It's time to go to be with me. And then from Revelation 4 verse 2. Until Revelation 19 verse 10, which is the seven years of tribulation on the earth, how many times are the church mentioned in those verses? Zero. I got a perfect zip over there. Zero. He's speaking solely to the church for three chapters: church, 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 church. He says it like 17 billion times. Revelation 4:1, the door sounds like the trumpet; it opens up. Come up here, and the people are gone. And after that, the church is never mentioned again until 19 verse 11. That's the return of Christ. And we're coming with him, by the way. Revelation 19:14 notes that we are there with him in his return. Somebody called me about something a few days ago, trying to trap me in the you know the pre-trib, mid-trib stuff, and he said um, seven-year tribulations never mentioned in the Bible. I said it's mentioned 42 months and 1,260 days. 42 months is three and a half years. 1,260 days is three and a half years. Three and a half and three and a half is Seven. 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 Seven matches Daniel 9, 24 through 27. Okay, it is mentioned. It's mentioned in the Old Testament and in the New. Pre tribulation rapture. Now, here's the note that I want everybody to understand why you are not to quote Jesus and the Synoptic Gospels, especially Matthew 24, for rapture and times theology. Not a single word of those three Synoptic Gospels are spoken to the church, and Matthew 24, 36 is spoken to Israel. While under the law, then it has nothing to do with the rapture. How do we know this? Because I told you to focus on one word that Paul was writing in one Thessalon. I'm sorry, one Corinthians chapter fifteen. Does anybody remember the word I said? This word, mystery. mystery. She paid attention. You get the cookie. She gets two today. This is great. And she doesn't even attend this church regularly. I know she does, but not regularly. She's not in here. All of you are, no cookie for you. She gets the cookie, and I'm going to fill up her car with cookies. Okay, the rapture was a mystery. Only revealed by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51. This was the first time it was ever directly and explicitly expressed and addressed in human history. As it flowed from the end of his pen, or his scribe's pen as he related to him, it had never been explained before. And he explained it. And guess how long that was after Christ's ascension? 20 to 25 years. Jesus was speaking in the Gospels about Israel. He was speaking about the end times, the millennial reign of Christ, and before that, the tribulation period. He was not speaking to the church he wasn't crucified, he wasn't resurrected, he was not speaking to the church. Paul revealed the mystery. Isaiah's words in the Old Testament, which speak of a possible rapture, were a mystery. People didn't know what they were talking about. Nobody read it and said, oh, gee, there's going to be a Gentile-led church age, and they're all going to be taken out at that time. They weren't thinking that, okay? Pictures of a pre-tribulation rapture. Pre-tribulation rapture from the Old Testament, and I'm saying pictures because God deals in pictures. We know this, especially with Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus. We've seen like 10,000 pictures of what God was going to do in Christ. Pictures of a pre-tribulation rapture are carefully recorded in the Old Testament. Very carefully, very minutely, and very particularly. If you want to see those, email me, and I will send you the link to that sermon, which I did online. Okay, It will explain to you in the Old Testament pictures, Moses goes to a certain location and he does a certain thing with Gentile people and then he returns to the people of Israel. There are several pictures in the Old Testament which explicitly show us the Gentile-led church age, the rapture of the church, and then the focus on Israel again. Email me and I'll send it to you. Maybe I can link it at the end of this sermon. If you want the written sermon, just go on the um, uh, Superior Word website and look for it. You'll find it, okay? Now... Having given you all of that information about the rapture, I did ask for a lesserick this week. We're going to close with a lesserick. And I said, I'm doing one on the rapture. I didn't get his opinion. Are you mid or pre or post trip I just said, you know, you can do whatever you want. And he, here's what he came up with, and you can guess which one he is Lord Jesus has made us a pledge. By rapture, surround us with hedge. We don't know the date, he'll never be late but the world is surely on edge. It is fact and not theory pre-trib to say anything else is a fib. If you think it's absurd to be truth of the word, you best don a big diaper and a bib. (laughs) So there you go. That's your Lesseric for the week and such is the world in which we live. From Sarasota, Florida to Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia. I'm Charlie Garrett. This is the superior word because we hold to the word of God and nothing else. This is the superior word and that is your prophecy update for the week.